0: So here, this third week of Advent, we look to Isaiah again. We'll also be reading from the book of Nahum, about a quarter of the way through. um, Another passage that's interesting to go with this one. So Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7. Let's go ahead and read that, and then we will pray and hear from the Lord through his word. Isaiah 52, verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, this passage, this one little verse, so much to unpack about the nature of the good news that we proclaim, that we come to celebrate every Sunday morning, the good news that we carry with us wherever we go, that you've granted to us in Christ your Son. I pray this morning that you would bend our hearts towards you in worship, that you would stoke a fire in our hearts to make you known and to proclaim you with boldness, with joy, with the motivation of seeing many more people come to know you and to worship you as you are worthy for sending your Son to die in our place, to rise again, so that we might have new life in you and be part of your family. We ask for your help now. Send your Holy Spirit. Teach us, empower us, and make us more yours each moment. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there's a pretty powerful word that opens up this one verse this morning, and that is beautiful. Husbands may reserve it such... such a word exclusively for their wives Um, a florist or a gardener may keep it until the right arrangement has been made and the perfect flower is in bloom or a musician may only use it when a true masterpiece is performed flawlessly we may say it as a cake leaves the oven when a perfect touchdown pass is caught Or at that satisfying sound of a baseball bat cracking as it collides with a 90-mile-an-hour fastball. There are countless other things that people have called beautiful. But this morning, as we look to Isaiah, it's kind of a strange thing to say here. How beautiful are the feet of those who carry the good news. For a moment... Recall with me, if you don't know the exact person, perhaps the time frame when you first heard the gospel and began believing in Christ and living for him. Perhaps there were multiple people. It could have been a parent or a pastor, a friend, or maybe even a complete stranger that shared the gospel with you. Hopefully recalling such persons strikes up joy in your mind Gratitude that the great gospel of Christ was shared with you. What thankfulness wells up in your heart. What relief, wondering, what if they hadn't shared this good news with me? Where would I be? It's always worth taking a moment to reflect on how you first heard and came to faith in Christ and to thank him additionally for the one whom he sent in order to share the gospel with you. In fact, let's just do something different for a second. I'm just going to stop for a second and give you like just a 30-second period to think on that moment when you came to faith in Christ or that time frame in your life. I don't have a moment. I have a time frame in my life. I can. There are faces that come to my mind that shared Christ with me. Take a moment. Think on those people. Thank the Lord for them. Would you do that with me? Amen. So today's text kind of raises an interesting question with this word Beautiful. Why are these feet beautiful? There's no description of this person. There's nothing said of the character or of their nobility or of their importance. It says nothing of the way he delivered the message. Nothing of the expression on his face or his appearance or anything. So why are the messenger's feet beautiful? Simply because of the content of the message. Right? Right? So today we're going to organize our verse into three movements again. First, going to be the scene of the message, then the substance of the message, and then the source of the message. And I'm not going to make any promises of finishing this trifecta of S words next week in the sermon outline to follow. I actually wrote that in, but then this morning I was working on the sermon and I already came up with three S words for next week too. So, first, the scene of the good news. The picture we're given is not a hard one to imagine. The context of the chapter calls into play another character besides the messenger in Isaiah 52. It also talks about a watchman. And the watchman stands high in his tower, looking to all sides for impending threats. He looks out from his tower and sees movement from far away. He braces himself as his friend or foe. As the figure draws closer, it's clear he is alone, not coming as a personal threat to the city, but to bring some kind of message His expression doesn't immediately give away the nature of the news, but it is clearly important. Will he deliver good news of some kind? Or does he bear a sober warning of impending threat? Closer and closer he comes until, exhausted, he reaches the gate. With all the strength he can muster, he pounds his fist on the gate to gain access. The gate opens. Relieved, he enters, catching his breath. Well, out with it! What have you to say? Finally getting to the purpose of his long journey across the mountains, the messenger breathes a simple phrase. Your God reigns. Shouts of victory and joyful laughter erupt all around. At last, the struggle is over. The war is at an end. We will have peace. We will be happy. Salvation has come, all because God is on the throne. But again, who is this messenger? Nobody. It doesn't matter. The point of the prophetic text is not to draw a portrait of the messenger, but to showcase the content and impact of the message. I hope you can kind of see already where we're going to go with this today. If you are in Christ, if you are made new in Him, you are the messenger. And it doesn't matter what kind of person you are. There's no description of the messenger here. If you have the message, You are the messenger. We can talk about Christian character and spiritual disciplines and all those things. And those are important and we ought to grow in Christ as we've been talking about in the book of Philippians. Growth in the faith is necessary to know that we are indeed in the faith. But from the moment of faith in Christ, if you've received that message and believed it, you are instantaneously transformed into a message bearer to those around you and if you've walked with Christ for however many years or even a couple decades or more that message and the importance of it and the necessity of it never fades so this past week I spent a few moments learning about the crown jewels of England because I'm just a nerd and I just like to know those things The collection consists of 140 objects. Crowns, swords, scepters, plates, orbs, robes, and others. And within those 140 items lie 23,578 precious stones. That's not an estimate, that's the exact number. Including the Cullinan diamond. Which is a whopping 530 karat jewel, estimated at a value of $400 million. Should be a couple more oohs and ahs at that, right? I guess if you saw it in person, if I could bring it to you, it would blow your mind, right? In total, these 23,578 stones are estimated at a value of 3 billion pounds. That's not how much they weigh. That's the British unit of money, in case you're wondering. It's nearly $4 billion. Thank you. Though as they are owned by the nation themselves, and therefore they're unlikely to be sold, they are labeled as priceless and uninsurable, for that matter. While highly protected at the Tower of London, the showcases they are housed in appear very simple. Of course, with dozens of armed guards around, as well as a robust security system, I imagine they are fairly safe. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. Jars of clay, treasure. Next week we're going to look at the wise men bringing treasures to the newborn king and and it just reminds me of thinking about the gospel as this great treasure that we hold. And thinking about the wise men carrying their gifts to to Jesus, I don't think they did that arbitrarily. They didn't do it. I went Christmas shopping yesterday with my wife because somehow we finally got away from the house and the kids for a couple hours, praise (laughs) the Lord. That somehow is my mother-in-law who is a blessing from heaven. But we got away. We went Christmas shopping, and there's a part of me that every time I go Christmas shopping, especially when you're in the extended family mode, where it's just kind of arbitrary, and you're just thinking, "I gotta come up with something." You know, will they like this? I don't know. I hope so. Here we go. It's basically my pattern of Christmas shopping with some people. But when you look at those wise men and think about them traveling potentially 40 days on camel or whatever, whatever other animal, or maybe on foot. They brought those gifts to Christ to present to him as an act of worship. To a, 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 God, a God made flesh who was worthy of such worship. And this treasure is greater than the treasures of the wise men brought to Jesus. And it's not, it's not a treasure that we, we, we present to God in worship. It's a, it's a treasure that we present to each other in fellowship. And we present to the lost for salvation. A couple of weeks ago, <coughs> excuse me, Tim reminded us of the significance of the veil of the temple being torn from top to bottom at the moment of Christ's death. Do you remember this? Signifying that access to God is now available to all who are in Christ, that the Holy Spirit now lives in believers, that the new temple of God, that we are the new temple of God, and that we carry the gospel message with us wherever we go in what Paul calls here jars of clay, which is also a really cool 90s Christian band. But think about it for a second. Simple, everyday, ordinary, inornate, but made beautiful because of the content within and guarded by the sovereign God who reigns over all. We're not walking around with the crown jewels and just looking over our shoulder hoping nobody mugs us. But what we have is greater than the crown jewels jewels in an infinite kind of way, infinitely greater than what we could ever see physically. We carry this great treasure, And are we guarded by the king's, the the queen's royal service? No, we're guarded by the living and sovereign God of the universe. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. Are you worthy of such a call to carry such a treasure? Am I worthy? Of such a call or to carry such a treasure no perhaps a better word for us than worth would be value and no doubt God values the clay pots he chooses to deliver the good news God values you brother and sister in Christ you are his chosen clay pot to bring the good news of Christ's coming wherever you go so what gives beauty to the feet of the messenger the beauty of the message We may find our culture asking questions as to the true value of this priceless gift of good news. Is it really relevant to me? What does it claim to solve? What will it cost me to benefit from it? Is it the only solution? And the answer to all these questions is yes and everything. Sin is the true problem of the world and it is of our making. Those who hear the good news from us may be ready to receive the message. They may be unaware of the problem they face. Or they may be convinced of a different problem other than sin. It is our job, sorry, is it our job to change their perspective or position on that? No. If you think that evangelism is you convincing people about God and the gospel, let me free you from that this morning. You don't do the convincing. You don't, you are a message bearer. When, when, our, when our illustration at the beginning, when the guy finally got through the gates and said the message, he didn't have to convince them of it. They were waiting for it. And even though we may think that the world and we may see hostility in the world, the world is looking for an answer and you have it. Share it with them. Ours is a role of proclamation. Does it matter how we deliver it? Sure. We must, as Paul says to us in Ephesians 4.15, speak the truth in love. And so I want you to think about this. Truth, motives, and delivery matter in that order. Begin with truth. Go to your motives. Why do I want to share this truth? For the glory of God and for the benefit of the person I'm speaking to. And then lastly, delivery. Okay. If you know the truth, and if your heart is willing to tell people about Jesus, worry about the delivery last. Worry about how you're going to package it in the end. When you're Christmas shopping, you don't start with saying, I don't know, maybe some of you do, I hope not, but you, don't, you hopefully don't start with saying, what kind of wrapping paper am I using, right? The first starting point is, what is the gift that I'm going to give and who is it going to be given to and why am I giving it and am I excited about giving this gift or not? Start with the truth, look to your motives, and then look to your delivery. And the Lord will provide all of those, by the way. Next, let's look at the substance of the good news. The substance of the message, or its contents in Isaiah 52, are three things. Peace, happiness, and salvation. And these three frame a great truth about the gospel by its definition, because it is, in fact, good news. If we seek to deliver the message of God to lost people, but frame it as bad news, we've completely missed the point. There is, of course, bad news to be had, Before, the good news can truly be good news. And with each of these three elements of good news, there's an implied message that these are needed because the bad news exists already. If the good news offers peace, there must be chaos that needs to be dealt with. If it offers happiness, there must be sadness to cheer. If it offers salvation, there must be something or someone we need saving from. All of these negatives are the result of our true problem of sin. And it matters that we make that fact abundantly clear. If we present the gospel as a solution to anything, besides first our sin problem, we're not offering the true gospel. Peace, happiness, salvation, all in and because of Jesus Christ. Bring these elements to your gospel proclamation. You will run into family members, neighbors, friends, co-workers this Christmas season who will need these things and who know they need them offer these things to them in Christ alone. Offer it through sharing the word, offering, offer it through living out these things. Maybe you need a refresher this morning on peace or on happiness or assurance of salvation. Rest in that this morning. Be recharged in knowing these things are available to us in the good news. Regardless of what's going on around us, you can have peace. You can have happiness. You can have salvation. And the sense of all those things rests in knowing Christ. And if no other time during the week, if, if, your, week, if your life is so hectic, and I believe maybe some of, yours, some of your lives are extremely hectic, maybe even just for this one moment today, rest in knowing this good news has been delivered to you. And if you believe it, you have access to all three of these, <laughs> these things that are found in it. So let's look at peace first. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. Though the world may crumble, we who hope in Christ have an everlasting peace in him that stands unmoved by the world. Perhaps peace is the most widely accepted cure a culture can agree that the world truly needs. No one in their right mind would deny a need for peace, but what exactly is that peace? Peace. You may be familiar with the Hebrew word here. Does anybody know what the Hebrew word is for for peace? Shalom, right? Yeah, and shalom to you as well. Because that is, in, a, in fact, a greeting that's still used by reverent Jews um, the world over. It's a wish of peace from one to another. But its implication is greater, though, than things simply going right or calmly. It carries the idea of completion. I'm going to use completeness in, in a minute here, so... Be ready for that I don't know if it's entirely a word but I didn't get that little red squiggly line when I typed it out so let's see when Adam and Eve disobeyed God in the garden sin entered with God our relationship was broken instead of completeness we are separated we are at war and opposed to God The good news being one of peace means that what Jesus did at the cross was to make shalom between God and his people, and through faith in him, we are able to live a new life of peace with God and each other, as the Prince of Peace was promised in Isaiah, who has come and will come again. He not only brings peace, but if you remember from last week, Micah 5, verse 5, said that he is our peace. Peace is a person. In proclaiming Christ to the world around us, we proclaim peace. Are there people you know who are aware of their need for peace? Let the promise of peace in Christ be a starting point for gospel conversation. Questions like, where do you suppose peace comes from? Or, what would it take to have peace in your life? Are great starting points that can lead to conversations about Christ. If you will, or if you're interested at least, go with me to Nahum chapter 1 Verse 15. I'm going to give you a second to get there in your Bibles because I'm going to be completely honest. I'm going to need a second to get there. Nahum chapter 1, verse 15. So Nahum says this Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill fulfill your vows. For never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Hopefully some of that language in there sounds familiar right off the bat to what we just read in Isaiah. It's no surprise, of course, because it's the same Holy Spirit who inspired both Isaiah to write what he wrote and Nahum to write what we just read as well. Nahum spends much of chapter 1 speaking judgment to Nineveh.